0: Good evening, everyone. My name is David Elwood, and as most of you know, I'm the dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. Uh, tonight should be quite an exciting and appealing evening. We're obviously joined by President, former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon. Uh, before I begin, let me say a, a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is to remind you about the sort of Ground rules at the forum. Uh, Civility and free speech are absolutely at the core of everything we do. We frequently have extraordinary guests, uh, such as tonight. Uh, Sometimes they are controversial. Sometimes people um, uh, are tempted to interrupt or in some way interfere with the the discussion. We have only one ground rule, and this is that anyone who speaks in the forum must take free and unfettered questions from the audience. That is the rule. And in exchange, the audience allows the person to speak and respond and uh, uh, in an unfettered way. Uh, so please don't uh, be disruptive in any way. And if you do, we'll have to ask you to be escorted out. Uh, as President Kennedy himself said, uh, civility is not a sign of weakness, uh, and sincerity is always subject to proof. All right, now let me just say a couple of words about our speaker to all of those of you in the audience. He needs really very little in the way of introduction. Um, before I do that though, I do want to recognize uh, Mr. Daniel Hernandez Joseph, the, the Consul General of Mexico in Boston. There you are, right there, welcome. Glad to have you here. Um, and especially I want to re- recognize uh, Margarita Tavala, uh, his lovely wife, thank you very much, and his daughter Maria, who is right next to him. So it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, we are thrilled. I'd also like to thank the Mossavara Ramani Center for Business and Government, for hosting President Calderon during his time here at school, and for someone who couldn't be here tonight, Barbara Whalen, Executive Director of the Wiener Center, for all he's done to make this, she's done to make this possible. Most importantly, I want to thank uh, Gianna Angelopoulos. Uh, ambassador Gianna Angelopoulos' vision and generosity made all this possible. She was, uh, uh, is from Greece. She is, in fact, was the ambassador to the Greek state a lawyer, former member of parliament, and the woman who by all accounts saved and ran the Olympics in Greece. Uh, You may recall there were stories that it was going to fall apart, in fact it was one of the best Olympics ever. She had the vision and the idea that people who had left uh, very senior positions in government, particularly heads of state, senior ministers, might benefit from a chance to be at the Kennedy School to listen and reflect on what they're going to do next and that we surely would benefit from their wisdom and their insights uh, and the lessons and the challenges that they've experienced. So I'm very, very pleased that um, uh, President Calderon's our very first uh, Angelopoulos Fellow. She's unable to be here tonight, but uh, Ms. Joan Goodman Williamson is right over here uh, representing her uh, on her behalf. So let me now turn to our guest tonight. And I'm not gonna go through the, the biography in great detail, it's in your program. Uh, and the like, but I would just highlight a couple of different things. First, and most importantly, he's a graduate of the Kennedy School. Um, And (laughs) class of 2000 graduate, there is a small contingent of 2000 uh, graduates here to support (laughs) the president. They have promised not to comment or ask any questions about behavior that occurred while he was at, what happens when you're a student at the Kennedy School stays at the Kennedy School, yes. Um, The president rose um, uh, to many significant roles in terms of leading his party and ultimately becoming president. But I think what's most interesting is he took over like a huge spike in violence and half a dozen other kinds of things, things that you would not have necessarily anticipated wherever else. He came into government pledging to make real change, to take on huge challenges, and there's no question that he was a powerful leader who took on some of the major challenges facing uh, Mexico. So uh, I'd actually like to begin, uh, Mr. President, by asking you, so here you are, You've. Um, this may be one of those be careful what you wish for moments, you're now President of Mexico, you've got. Uh, it's a, as I say, it's a, a controversial election. It's a there's a three parties and so forth, major parties. Um, how did as you began your presidency? How did you think about what challenges you were going to take on, and and how were you going to do this?
1: Well, thank you first for your invitation, Dean. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, let me tell you that uh, even before my inauguration, during the transition, we focused on two kind of aspects, short-term and long-term. Let me start with the short-term. In the short-term, we needed uh, to to make our case in the courts because the election was in dispute. And we did that, but also we did we made our case with the people, which was very important. And the lesson is uh, whenever there is there are two parts in conflict, it's very important to persuade the rest of the people about what exactly is happening, um, who is right in this uh, process. So we were very open explaining any allegations about the elections. More than one million citizens participated in the voting stations, uh, counting and watching the election. We got observers coming from abroad from all the world. That date was a very fair election, very tight election, yes, but very fair one. and we we made our case with the people explaining all those things. Then after the resolution of the courts about the election, we focus in the inauguration, and we analyze every single scenario for that day. And one of those scenarios was the radicalization of uh, my opponent, and in fact it happened. He blocked the streets, and actually members of the Congress of his party closed the door of the Congress with chains, and physically blocked the podium uh, where I was going to take my out of office. A lot of people tried to persuade me to organize a ceremony in other place, but refused that. There were some rumors about uh, weapons or some <laughs> explosive in the very same Congress. But finally, we went there. Um, we prepared the ceremony, and I remember when I was in Congress the first time, like more than 20 years ago, I was the president of the chamber for one of the most important debates then. And I remember that behind uh, the podium and the presidium, there is a room, there is an office for the president, and there is a direct access from the parking lot to that office, uh, very small, but very, very tiny, but anyway, I remember that. And I asked my security team, please secure that door just in case. It's going to be necessary. And actually, it was necessary that, that day. So I went to the Congress. Um, First of that, in the short term, just to say. Explaining to the people what happened, um, rejecting any provocation, we started to gain support of the people. Uh, you can imagine the election was really tight. I, I got thirty-six percent of the votes. My opponent, thirty-five. Uh, before my inauguration, I had uh, like fifty-four percent of approval in opinion polls. And the day of inauguration, I went there. I passed through that door, and with the support of the congressmen of my own party, we. Uh, we had access to the podium. It was like an American football play, no? Mm-hmm. A first and goal, almost, no? But finally we got, and I took uh, my oath to office. And finally, despite it was a very wary ceremony, the people uh, was really ha- were really happy about that, celebrating, and actually the rate of approval for the government went up to more than 70 in the first days of December. And with that, we started to work in the long term. In the long term, since the beginning, we prepared a long-term vision plan called Mexico 2030, Mexico 2030. Depending on that plan, we established clear goals in several areas, uh, rule of law and security, competitiveness of the economy, equal opportunities, sustainable development, and democracy. We started to prepare the first action And the first action I remember was to promote a very important reform, the pension reform, which actually was passed in March, the the first quarter of that year. And the pension reform allowed the government to pass the public servants from the traditional pay as you go system to a new individual retirement account system. And with that, we were able to save more than 30 points of GDP at net present value for public finance. So in brief, Yes, there were a lot of problems, but we started to get in support of the people, um, always thinking in the long term, despite the circumstances we needed to face. That was more or less the scenario at the beginning of, of my government.
0: And then, not too far in, you, you faced this economic crisis, and of course, being as um, connected as, as Mexico is, the United States, and the crisis really began here, um, that must have created just unbelievable challenges. Um, Very
1: difficult. I I remember the the figures. uh, We were looking the data. Um, I remember the first and the second quarter of 2009. The economy was going down at the rate of 10% negative. So it was an incredible moment. uh, Very painful for the people. But, But first thing at that moment, we put in place any counter-cyclical measure we could at that time. So for instance, of course we expanded public expenditure, we expanded the deficit, we put in place uh, temporary jobs in the community areas in public works. We put in place a quite interesting agreement, for instance, uh, the crisis uh, had tremendous impact in particular in export-oriented industries. Automotive industry, electronics, and so on, to the United States, of course. And in that sense, we made an agreement with the unions and with the companies. Under that agreement, if the workers accepted a pay cut in their salaries, and if the company accepted to pay one part of the salary instead to fire the workers, the government accepted to pay the other part of the salary by, by three or six months, depending on the circumstances. And we saved in that measure, with that measure like half a million jobs in the export-oriented industry. We expanded the credit to small and medium enterprises. Uh, I need to say that the, in this case, the, the bank banking system in Mexico is a very important asset in this moment because uh, it was very well capitalized, 16% of capital or, and the international parameters are roughly like 8 or 10% today. Um, with the support of the government, we established a system to provide guarantees for small medium enterprises. We expanded the expenditure infrastructure and so on. So that was like eight months in 2009. But at the end of that year, uh, we started an exit strategy. Because we realize, and that is very important for the students of government and public policy, no? whenever you have the opportunity to use the public deficit, you can, you can use that once, and that's it. There is a one-shot weapon. Um, the capital scene in government is to use that temporary measure as a permanent one. So we needed to reduce the deficit, and in order to do that, We follow a very old recipe. So we increase taxes and we reduce expenditures. It was very painful in political terms, but it was absolutely necessary for the country. And with that, we increase VAT and uh, income taxes. Actually, I proposed to the Congress to close three secretaries, tourism, public affairs, and agrarian reform. The Congress rejected, but uh, but the idea was to provide clear signal to the market that the Mexican government was absolutely serious about its commitment. Uh, I closed a very big and inefficient utility company of the government, Lucy Fuerza, which uh, it cost for taxpayers $5 billion a year in subsidies. It was very difficult, painful. One day we can talk about it, but uh, we closed it. And with that, uh, we overcame the worst part of the crisis. But we used the economic crisis not only to deal with that, but to improve the competitiveness of the economy. We invested a lot. During my term, the infrastructure passed from 3 to 5% of GDP a year. Not only public, but also and mainly private investment. We invested a lot in our people. For instance, we created 1,100 new high schools, And 140 new universities, public and tuition-free universities, um, tuition-free high schools. Uh, We invested in our people in health services. For instance, we multiply by six the budget for the so-called Seguro Popular, the popular insurance. And with that, we reach universal health care in Mexico at the end of my administration. Uh, We reduced tariffs, and we we bet in free trade. Celebrate more free trade agreements, reduce tariffs from 11 to 4 percent, so the Mexican market became very, very competitive. Uh, with that, for instance, when I took office, Mexico was the ninth largest exporter of vehicles in the world. Today, is the fourth largest exporter of vehicles in the world, and probably will be the third at the end of this year or next year. And it's very competitive, uh, especially in manufacturing. So Mexico gained a lot of momentum there, and today. Mexican economy has three years in a row growing at a rate of 4.4% on average, uh, creating jobs and so on. So it was a very difficult moment. But finally, following the instructions of Kennedy School, we, we made it. Um,
0: well, I'll come back to that question. The, uh, uh, another remarkable moment, and indeed one I talk about frequently, uh, is what I call an acting in time problem. Uh, For part of the time that I've been dean, we've had a focus on something called acting in time problems. Those are problems that you can kind of see coming a mile away, um, that for some reason people or governments or nations are unwilling or unable to act. You might think of climate change as being something like that, demographic change, long-term budget problems. Um, And these are particularly problematic when you know that acting sooner rather than later would make a huge difference. And another example is uh, pandemics. Now, pandemics, you don't know exactly when it's going to come, but when it does come, acting sooner rather than later makes a huge difference. Now, um, H1N1 uh, was supposed that you know, the next big virus was supposed to appear in Asia, Southeast Asia most likely. Uh, we had some experience with SARS and so forth. Um, near as I can tell, Mexico took unbelievably radical steps. Uh, at great cost in the near term, um, but it had enormous benefits to the larger world as well as to Mexico, I hope, in the long run. Tell me how that story, talk, talk to me through how that all happened. Why, why did, how did you, how were you able to act so quickly and, and why?
1: It was a, another very painful moment, actually it was in the middle of the crisis because it was the second, well, the second quarter of 2009 again with economy, the economy going down. Uh, let me tell you, I remember that uh, we started to see some unusual uh, deaths in the hospitals. Uh, very weird because they were very young people dying from pneumonia, for instance. So uh, we talked with the Secretary of Health and we sent some samples to labs here in the United States and Canada. We were waiting for the new virus. Everybody. It's expecting. Actually, there is a new virus right now in China, aviar yes. flu. I read the news today that uh, uh, well, like 23 persons out of 100 have died last week. So it's very aggressive virus, avian flu. But it, we, we were expecting that kind of flu. And then one day, the secretary told me, Mr. President, we received the results of the lab. And they say that this is a new virus, it's a lethal one, and they don't know how to fix that. So, uh, and the problem we have is the outbreak was exactly in Mexico City, a city with uh, 22 million people. So we, they took a lot of decisions that night. One, we went public and the order was we will have a policy of full disclosure, and I instructed the secretary, if we have today 22 people dying, you will say we have 22 people dying today. If we have 150 people going into intensive care, you will say that. Uh, we, we were up completely transparent to Mexican people and to the world. It was painful, we lost a lot of tourism at that moment, but there was no other option in my opinion. So then we started to establish a very close monitoring process, almost counting each one of the people in the hospitals in the whole country. I decree a special measures for the government, emergency measures, and the government was able to get, for instance, new labs, and we established uh, labs able to analyze the virus in every single capital of the states in the country. Of course, we both all the medicine, we, we were able to do that, the Tamiflu. We bought that from all the world. We started to bow to, uh, because finally the, the, the labs in Canada discovered that Tamiflu was very useful to, for the virus. And the second objective was to reduce the speed, the rate of, uh, of sp- spread of, of, of the disease. Yeah. Um, and in order to do that, I went to the public, and I asked to Mexico City and other uh, cities, we need to avoid any unnecessary contact with other people. Uh, the traditional measures you need to take, you need to wash your hands frequently in the day. Uh, we, uh, I decree, like, it was not a holiday, but uh, a day off uh, work in Mexico City, uh, two of them. And finally, the people, incredible, but the people follow us. You could see the streets in Mexico City with nobody there. You could see the restaurants, the people in their homes. And the rate uh, of the, uh, the spread of the virus started to reduce. And we were analyzing the number of people going into the hospitals. Finally, uh, there were quite interesting consequences, some of them very positive. For instance, the, number, the average of days in hospitals of people with the respiratory disease reduced from eight days to three days. Why? Because people started to go to doctor in earlier, no, with the, with the very first symptoms and was absolutely good for the system. The other, the digestive disease reduced because the people started to wash their hands and so on. And we learned a lot. Finally, we overcame the crisis. Uh, the outbreak went into control. The uh, in the World Health Organization were very close with us. They declared pandemic this disease, but finally we deal with that. And I think that the information we provided was very useful for a lot of countries.
0: And was there any debate? Um, did you know? I would think many countries would have the reaction. Frankly, the early what seemed to happen in the early part of SARS in in China. Uh, Sort of like, oh geez, uh, let's 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 even within a, within the states of Mexico, you know, oh we shouldn't tell anyone, uh, let's keep this quiet. It's going to destroy uh, tourism. We'll be blamed. Whatever. Was anybody?
1: Yes, uh, there there was a lot of pressure in order to like. Uh I cannot say hide, but uh, dismiss the risks. Or wait I, until you
0: had more knowledge. Yeah, Surely yeah, you can't absolutely. be sure. It's hard to know exactly. And,
1: and even try uh, proposes in the sense to hide the information to the people, which actually happened. Somebody says happened in some countries with other diseases or with other pandemic cases. But I decided we need again full disclosure uh, to have these more severe and concrete measures. Why? Because. I was analyzing, and that, that's the problem with any policymaker or any government. You need to take decisions without full information. We didn't know the consequences of the, of the disease. We were not able to know what kind of medicine could be useful for that. You need to decide in that ver- in this very moment. In that sense, I had two options in these streams, no? Either say nothing is happening, but if results that the H1N1 was as terrible as aviar flu, for instance. Uh, the, some estimation of Mexican government say that if aviar flu appears in Mexico City, it could provoke like 18 million casualties yeah. in the country. Uh, the the, the avian flu has a rate of mortality of 60%. Uh, if that was the case, and we didn't take the measure, it would be a full collapse. In the other hand, if we take very aggressive measures, and the virus is irrelevant, uh, could be a huge discussion. But the point is, you cannot take the risk in which the life of the people is at stake. So you need to take the right decisions with the information you, you have on it. But it was a huge discussion, yes.
0: So let me turn to the, the most, you know, some of the most difficult issues, which had to do with violence, um, the organized crime, drugs, and so forth. Um, another place where you took very strong action, but it had very significant consequences. Tell us how that all evolved and how you think about that.
1: Well, the, first, let me, let me tell you, Dean, that uh, always here in the United States, the only only way in which this phenomenon is interpreted or is understood is through the expression war on drugs.
0: War on drugs. Mm -hmm.
1: But let me tell you, war on drugs is an expression coined by President Nixon in the 70s here in the States. And I didn't declare a war on drugs. Because yes, there is a clear correlation between drugs and organized crime and violence, but my priority as government was not tackling drugs itself. My priority was the security of the families. It was the rule of law. And in that point, uh, what we are actually, even in my government, we decriminalized the personal possession of drugs in Mexico. What is happening with violence in Mexico? Uh, in, on my, in my opinion, there are four factors that are acting here. Two of them are new two of them are very old factors. One is the weakness of uh, law enforcement and security agencies and institutions in Mexico, mainly due to corruption, which unfortunately is not new. Second, and very very important, the struggle, the battle for the control of the territory between gangs, which is new, and I will say why. Third, the almost unlimited access to money going south from the United States. We are estimating that the $20 billion are arriving to the hands of the criminals every single year from the United States. That is not new. And the fourth factor is almost unlimited access to weapons, which is new. And the fact is, after the assault weapons ban expired here in the United States in 2004, the spiral of violence started to grow in Mexico. Because today, for the criminals, it's very easy to get access to AR-15 or AK-47 and so on. Now, let me focus on the second phenomenon, which is the battle for territorial control. The criminals are battling so hard, so horrible, trying to to control one single territory. And why is that today and not before? Why that phenomenon is new? the business of the, criminal, of the criminals changed. In the past, and uh, coming back to drugs, the business was only oriented to trafficking to US drugs. Actually, the, the word narcotraffic means that, the traffic of narcotics to US. However, as long the Mexican economy started to grow and the income per capita passed from $2,000 to $15,000 under PPP, uh, Mexico became a very important market for vehicles, for housing, for computers, and for drugs as well. And what happened? The new business is not about exporting drugs. It's in addition to the exporting business. It's about retailing drugs. And like any other retail retailer uh, for uh, sodas or for beer or whatever, what you need is the control of the territory. Because you need the control of multiple point of sales every single day. You need to know how many diet codes were sold here at the cafeteria at Kennedy School. You need the control of the point of sales. And for the criminals, to have the control of the territory in a town or a city or a region, that's crucial. So when one criminal bank fights for the territory with another one, they went into this terrible dispute in a very violent manner. That is the origin of this new violence in the last decade. Uh, beyond that, once the, in order to take the control of the, ter- 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 the territory, the criminals need the control of the authority. How to do that? There are two options, either bribery, corruption, or intimidation, We say, in Mexico, La ley de plata o plomo, either silver or lead. Uh, and unfortunately, it's working in some some towns or cities. And once the criminal have the control of the city, they can do anything. And any sense of authority disappear, law enforcement disappear, police collapse. So not only organized crime, but any any. Crime arise, kidnapping, extorting. Why kidnapping and extorting? Because organized crime is looking for the rents of the community. It's not about drugs anymore. They are looking for the rents of the illegal people, other criminals, theft cars, for instance, in the community, except somebody in the business of theft cars. If you want to theft cars here, you will pay me a fee. And then start to, to take fees from the legal side of the economy. Oh, from any businessman, any farmer, any, uh, any, any persons in the trade, or whatever. So that is the reason why we started with Mexico a lot of, not only violence, but a lot of crime. So in order to deal with that, we put in place a comprehensive strategy with three main axes. First, facing the criminals with full force of the state. And if the police corps are so weak or eroded by corruption or intimidated, we put in place, supporting them, the federal forces, including the army. And uh, this measure is understood as temporary measure because their mission is to provide room or space for local authorities to rebuild their own police corps. Second measure, and most important than than the previous one, is to rebuild or overhaul law enforcement agencies and institutions. And we did so. So we established, for instance, by first time ever in Mexico, vetting process in order to, be, to get access or to remain in any, in any law enforcement agency. So you want to be there, you want to pass a vetting process, uh, you want to remain there, the same. Second, we created a new reliable federal police passing from only 4,000 members of uh, highways patrol, some of them very involved in corruption, to 36,000 new policemen, most of them very young policemen, 12,000 of them graduating from university, engineers, lawyers, and so on. And they are working not only in the vehicles in the the streets, they are working in their computer doing uh, information and intelligence. We provided the state-of-the-art technology to the police, so they are able to prosecute in a more efficient way the criminals. For instance, we created the so-called Plataforma Mexico, which is an enormous database with more than 500 millions of data. You can imagine the fingerprints of the criminals, uh, fingerprints of the policemen everywhere, uh, reports of incidents of traffic in the cities. The, Fingerprints of the weapons of the, of the police. So all these data allow us to prosecute in a more efficient way the criminals. For instance, we catch the, the criminals who perpetrated a terrible uh, attack in one casino in Monterrey through the fingerprints in one of the vehicles. After the fingerprint, we catch him, and after him, we catch the full band of them. So, And the third axis of the strategy, more important than the other two, is rebuilding social fabric. And in order to do that, the idea is to provide opportunities for young, for teenagers and youth people. And that is the sense why we created these uh, high, high schools, universities, treatment and prevention for addictions among youth people. We found it like... Uh, more than 300 new facilities for prevention of addiction. Margarita, my, my wife, work a lot training parents and teachers and volunteers in prevention of addiction and so on. So that's more or less the strategy. What is the outcome? The rate of homicides finally started to decrease in April 2011. It has two years in a row decreasing. Other crimes, some of them are decreasing, other not. We clean up the federal police and most of the federal agencies at federal level, but a lot must be done at local level because we have not the support or the same kind of support from all the governments at state and municipal level. Uh, And it's an ongoing process. I could say that, uh, one final example in this is Ciudad Juarez. I remember that one of the most difficult moments under my presidency is when a group of teenagers and youths were killed in a, a place in Ciudad Juárez called Salvarcar, Villa de Salvarcar. It was difficult and painful. I went to Ciudad Juárez immediately. I made I met their parents publicly in a very difficult situation. And we start to work with the community and with their parents. And finally, Two years later, one year later, in Salvarcar we built new facilities, uh, soccer fields, American football fields. We organized uh, an orchestra, or, or, orchestra there, a library, daycare center, a community center, and then there are hundreds of two people. And Villa de Salvarcar passed from being a symbol of uh, death to a symbol of hope in Ciudad Juarez. The end of the story of Ciudad Juarez is the rate of homicides after putting in place this comprehensive strategy. We call that Todos Somos Juarez and I wrote something in one journal here at Kennedy School. Uh, The rate of homicides went down 70%, it's even zero from its peak. Much more needs to be done, but uh, more or less what is happening. But it's not a question just of war on drugs. It's a question of security and rule of law. And uh, It's a long-term strategy and long-term process of that. Great.
0: All right, I want to open it up to questions. We have four microphones located, one right here, one here, one there, and one there. And let me remind all those of you who are new to the Kennedy School or are here, a good question has uh, three elements. First, you identify yourself. Uh, second, you uh, keep it short, uh, and it has only one concept, one question in it. And third, it ends with a question mark. Um, and so let me start uh, right up here. Hi President. Hello. Hi, President Calderon. My name is Will. I'm a, a member of the forum committee. And we have a question from Twitter uh, for you, which is, what was your biggest mistake, do you think, during your administration, and what would you have done differently?
1: What is a difficult question? One thing is uh, probably I needed to work much more with the Congress, and actually I started doing so. Uh, probably my main, my right hand in politics was a very close friend of mine, a very smart guy, Juan Camilo. And he built a very good, uh, very good net with the Congress. Actually, he and the Secretary Vazienda at that time made possible two important reforms, the pension reform and the energy reform, 2007 and 2008. At the beginning of my administration, we started to have very frequent meetings with congressmen, breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, one-on-one uh, meetings, and so on. But one day, Juan Camilo uh, died. He had uh, uh, airplane crash, accident. He was Secretary of Interior. Uh, It was a painful moment for me as well. And then uh, uh, I appointed another Secretary of uh, Interior and we changed the style and he was really smart and I delegated a lot the relations with the Congress. Looking backward, and that is very difficult, by the way, probably all those years after, uh, I needed to work a little bit more in personal terms with the Congress again as uh, the very first two years of my government. That could be strategies, but uh, that could be different in several, in several issues.
0: Right up here. Hi, President Calderón. Uh, my name is Antonio Copete. I'm uh, a postdoc at the Center for Astrophysics. Um, I um, I was very interested in uh, in uh, what you said earlier in your and uh, your talk when you mentioned that you were planning you had plans to eliminate the Secretary of Tourism in Mexico, um, and uh, and I wanted to ask you who, what was your rationale behind behind that uh, decision and and why what do you think is the proper role of tourism? within uh, an, uh, an economic strategy for Mexico or for other countries like Latin American countries. I ask because I, I personally come from Colombia and, um, and I'm a little bit frustrated by, by, by what I would call an over-reliance of the government on tourism in order to kind of make up for, it, for the lack of productivity of the economy in other, in other sectors.
1: Well, I'm, I'm really a believer in tourism. Let me start with that. Actually, we promoted Mex- tourism to Mexico in several ways. By the way, I recommend you probably in YouTube. Of uh, let me see if I can get some copies. Uh, TV show called the Royal Tour with Peter Greenberg, and we traveled through of the the country. Uh, I made zip line, I made rappel, I dive. What's uh, it was very funny by the way, but promoted Mexico. It has millions of of watchers of the program. But the point is, I do believe that the economies, especially developing economies, could have a tremendous potential in the economic field in tourism. As long as the economy has a a normal transition from primary sector agricultural process to secondary sector industry, and then to trade and services, tourism, could be one of the most important sources of jobs for any economy today. In particular, Mexico. Because Mexico has an amazing, an amazing assets in terms of natural resources or cultural resources. We have a, like a, one of the most important countries with the, with the cultural sites or, or, or global heritage, according to the United Nations. Uh, we have an original culture, like Olmecas and uh, natural places. By the way, the, the best beaches in the world are the Mexican one. I strongly recommend that. Uh, but the, the, the archaeological sites and the rainforests and deserts and everything. Now, uh, what are the rationality be- behind that? Honestly, we needed to provide a clear signal to the global community, the market community, about how serious our government was, reducing the deficit. Uh, There are several ways to organize a government. In some places, tourism is considered like other very important economic activity. So you have a secretary of economy, the proposal was to establish or to put trade, and tourism, and agriculture under the coverage of, uh, of economy uh, with more powers. More powers, But the idea was more to provide clear signal. We knew that the Congress was going to reject that, uh, uh, but the signal works a lot. So Mexico recovered a lot of credibility in that very particular moment. That didn't happen with other economies. If you analyze the moment in which the country risk of several nations started to split, what exactly in, at the end of 2009? Some economies decide to keep with the expansionary monetary policy and f- expansionary fiscal policy, like European countries, um, I, I probably sounds familiar to you, Spain, Greece, Portugal. And we decided to not only reduce the deficit, but also be absolutely clear about that. Saying that, let me tell you that we multiply the budget for tourism all the time. And Mexico, even with all the problems we have and the bad image we have, uh, precisely by by violence, Mexico received 23 million tourists a year, plus 7 million in cruise ships, plus 42 millions crossing the border only one day. So uh, the tourism grew in the last two years. Not enough, but grew. And actually, for instance, in order to promote tourism, and that's in my last comment on that, I canceled the requirement of visa from several nations, including Colombia, by the way. I canceled the Colombian visas. I canceled the Peruvian visas. And I apply a principle in which whoever, whoever has an American visa could go to Mexico. I was very criticized for my fellow politician in the country, but it was a very pragmatical measure in order to promote tourism. The uh, tourism coming from Russia, for instance, multiplied by three in one year, only with that measure. So uh, that was more or less my explanation. But it was uh, like providing signals to the market that we needed at that moment. Right here. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, it is a great honor to hear you speak, uh, President Calderon. Um, I was wondering if you could share with us um, a couple of your honest thoughts on how Mexico has fared uh, in this new current administration. What, are, uh, what have you been most impressed by? Maybe what have you been a little more disappointed by? Um, and if you could just sort of maybe talk about what your thoughts are for the future of Mexico. Tough question because okay. I wanted to be a very prudent ex-president. And that includes the idea that no, to make too much opinions about the new government. I wish the best for the new government because I really really want the best for Mexican people. Nevertheless, let me give you a comment about that. (laughs) I hope that uh, (laughs) to be careful enough about that. But uh, the new government has an advantage that no one of us had in the past not in the democratic era of Mexican presidents, and not before. And that is the support, real and loyal support of the political parties in the opposition. There is a so-called Pacto por Mexico, or agreement for Mexico, signed by those political parties following a very old principle in my own party, National Election Party. In our principles, established our principles established the national interest is most important than the interest of the party. Now, when we were in government, frequently, as the dean was saying, we were blocked in several initiatives from opposition parties. Actually, I was blocked in several initiatives, energy reforms. I was blocked in others. I don't want to mention for. Uh, For one of the parties there, and actually the other party, it was not only blocking my initiatives, they wanted all the time to get my own resignation. I didn't give them that, (laughs) but it was a very difficult time. Now, my party with the other PRD, they decided to be more cooperative. We were blocked when we were in government, and we are not paying with the same coin. And today we are very cooperative, And that is a tremendous advantage that is providing a lot of power to new government. And the new government need, must, to get an advantage of that. And my best recommendation is to provide any conditions in order to strengthen the political conditions that made the pacto possible. And if uh, if that is correct, Mexico will have a tremendous moment today. Let me tell you, the economy is very competitive already. Honestly, we made uh, it's. I think it's, it's doing very well. The Mexican economy. Forbes talks about the Mexican miracle. Uh, the economists talk about the rise of Mexico. They issue a complete edition in November of, about that. If Mexico make today. More reforms, in particular in energy sector, in order to get the advantage of natural gas, in particular shale gas, Mexico will be one of the most competitive economy in the world in this decade. And in order to do that, to pass a reform like that, it is necessary the support of the opposition. I had not; the president, new president, has, and they need they need to take care about that.
0: Right over here. Hi, um, Presidente Calderon. Uh, I'm Alan Shi. I'm, I'm a senior here at the college. And I uh, know that you had implemented
1: universal healthcare uh, during your time. And I was wondering if you could speak toward that and how you, your thought process was when you uh, instituted universal healthcare, and especially as the United States is also looking toward to expanding their healthcare as well. Thanks. Well, I don't want to talk about the controversies here in the United States. No. I really respect the local decisions, but what we did is, I was uh, talking a few minutes ago that uh, even during the, in my own political platform, the campaign, there was the proposal uh, of universal health care. When we were designing the long-term plan, Mexico 2030, and the national development plan during the transition, we established clearly that goal. And in public policy, the key for any goal is the budget. So even during transition, we decided to apply a lot of money for that program. And you need to do a lot of things, improving the tax collection, increasing taxes. We did both things. And even reducing some budgets to increase the budget on your priorities. We did so, we almost doubled the total budget for health in Mexico, but in particular, the so-called Seguro Popular, the popular insurance, we multiplied almost by six its budget in six years. So the coverage for the people, when I took office, was uh, the traditional system, the social security system, and the social security for public workers system, they cover like 57 million Mexican people. At the end of my administration with Seguro Popular, we covered 107 million out of 112, which means practically universal health care. Besides that, we made a very aggressive infrastructure program in health. For instance, we built 1,200 new hospitals or clinics in the country and rebuilt more than 2,000 more. And with that, we, of course, we hired thousands of doctors and nurses, and with that, today, any Mexican that need it has a doctor, medicine, treatment, and hospital, whenever they need One single f- comment about that, it's, for instance, another tough decision. Treatment of cancer is really expensive. So the Seguro Popular has uh, like a basic framework of diseases most common for the people, but it was not covering cancer. And we decided to establish all the cancers for all the children. For any Mexican under 18, is full, she or he has full coverage on cancer. Before that measure, for instance, seven out of ten children with leukemia Died. After that, the other way around, seven out of ten with leukemia survived. So that is creating an incredible difference for a lot of families. That is the way in which we work in that, in
0: that measure. Right up here. Hi, my name is Auden Lawrence. I'm a freshman at the college, and I would like to ask you the following question on behalf of the JFK Junior Forum Committee. You became involved in politics at a very young age, relatively speaking. Was there a moment or what inspired you to dedicate so much of your life to public service?
1: Well, it's a long story. (laughs) Uh, You know, my my father, well, let me let me go very far in this. Once upon a time. Mexico had a very autocratic system. You know, there was one single party in power during 70 years. All the governors were from the same party, all the senators, almost all the congressmen, almost all the mayors. All the media were under the control of the government. All the union and organizations, all the farmers. Um, sometimes, for instance, when students in college like you protested and asked for democracy, they were massacred in 68 and in 71. However, in some points of uh, the geography, there were some very brave citizens building democracy in a peaceful way. One of them was my own father. And I remember when I was a kid, I could not understand why. Daddy, you are always the candidate of the party. Why? Because nobody else wanted to be candidate of the party at that time. And I remember myself after school, I joined him knocking doors, handing out flyers, and talking from a very old sound system in a very old band, by the way. And I grew up with that way of life, if, if you allow me that. But when I was like a teenager, one day I was really tired about that and said, enough. So I went to my father and told him, you know, daddy, what, what is the case of this? What is the point? Because we are, do, we are trying to do a lot. Honestly, the people don't care, and when the people cares, the government steals our votes and our victories. So, what is the point? Uh, my father told me I understand your anger, but what we are doing here is our moral duty. There is not other way in which Mexico could be one day a democracy, and no, if we. Don't do this, nobody else will do. Um, Be clear about this. Probably you never will see a governor coming from our party in office, let us president. But it's a moral duty because this is the way in which we love others. This is the way in which we take care about our neighbors. So it was clear enough for me my father passed away, and the flame of democracy started to grow in Mexico. In the '90s, I became president of the party, and I had a very important negotiation with former president Cedillo. Uh, we negotiated an electoral reform that allowed to have an independent commission organizing the elections, and allowed to have electoral courts in Mexico, and allow more uh, fairer conditions for elections. And finally, my party won the election in 2000. And six years later, I won the election. Uh, so that's my story.
0: Thank you. Up here.
1: Uh, good evening. My name is Sarah, and I'm a freshman at the college. Um, you mentioned in response to an earlier question eliminating the need for visas for Colombia and Peru. Um, how do you see the future of Mexico's collaboration with the rest of South America? and I mean, Latin America in... Um, Political and economic terms. Let me go with economic terms. No? Well, you know, I, we probably are Latin Americans. We Mexicans, we have tremendous privilege. Why? Because geographically, we are in North America, but in cultural terms, we are in Latin America. We are proud about that. So we are gaining advantages being in North America and uh, having a border with the largest economy in the world still today. Huh. Uh, well, with all this trouble, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, we are trying to strengthen our ties with Latin America, not only in cultural terms, because Mexican culture is present in any single country, of Latin America. You can listen Mariachis everywhere and Mexican food, and Mexican movies. Uh, and people love that, and we are happy with that. But we needed to, to build more ties with the country. Now, in the neighborhood, some of us believe in trade. Other friends don't believe in trade. I do believe in trade. So we started a very ambitious program. We call Alianza del Pacifico, the Pacific Alliance. And we started to organize a common market common market for merchandises, common market for services, common market uh, or free movement in the people, and I hope someday common stock exchange market between Chile, Peru, Colombia, Mexico. and There are some observers like Panama, Costa Rica, and others are considering to be part of that. Pacific Alliance today is more powerful than other trade organizations in Latin America, in Concrete Mercosur. Why? Because, for instance, only Mexico is exporting 60% of total manufacturers in the region. Or in other words, Mexico is exporting more manufactured goods than the rest of Latin American and Caribbean countries combined. So uh, that's the way in which we are having a link with our friends. Now, talking about politics, It is clear that there is uh, an ideological struggle in Latin America. Uh, Fellow presidents more oriented toward one vision, more oriented toward uh, the control of the state, more oriented toward closed economies, more oriented to more expropriations of the market. And although we are more oriented to the market, more oriented to freedom in political and economic terms, and more oriented to investment. I do believe that the future is there. In my opinion, what is happening in Latin America since several years ago is a very important debate between the past and the future. The past is, in economic terms, expropriation, nationalism closed economies and efficient economies. And the future is trade, investment, and of course, economic performance. You can see the economic performance of these open economies. Chile, or Peru for instance, Peru is growing like 6% on average in probably 10 years. Uh, Now, other countries believe in other things. And in political terms, I do believe in free elections. I do believe in uh, freedom. Free press, free speech, and maybe other countries or leaders believe different. But the past and the future are in a tremendous struggle in Latin America. Mexico needs to play an active role in favor of the future, in favor of democracy, and in favor of prosperity that could be only explained through
0: the market and freedom. This will have to be the last question. My name is Elsa. I'm a joint degree student at the Kennedy School and a Business School. So I hope to ask you two questions. The first one is very short. Um, I was going to ask you what was the best party you've gone to when you were a student at the Kennedy School, but following Dean Elwood's <laughs> advice to not ask about that, uh, I changed my question I didn't to say you couldn't ask. I just said uh-huh. you, you, you couldn't not. tell. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can answer that too. Uh, I changed my question to what was your favorite class when you oh. were a student here? And can you tell us about that class? Um, and I'll give you some time to think about it, so I'll ask a second question, which is... That's your third. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so you can choose from uh, the three. So the last one is, what has been the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? So let me, let, this is the last question. Why don't you broaden that a little bit about what, what parts of the Kennedy School were particularly helpful? Ah. Um, and Feel free to tell us what things we can make better.
1: Well, oh, let, me, uh, let me be honest on this part. When I came to Kennedy <laughs> School, <laughs> no, and then the other parts I was honest as okay, well. Okay. But, <laughs> <I've been> honest. <laughs> but it's the most difficult one. Huh? <laughs> when I came here, I, I had been before, as I said, congressman and president of my own party, candidate for governor. And I was looking for some uh, break because I had very difficult times. One day I will explain what, what I mean for that. But uh, when I came, I saw that according with the program of the school, there were some mandatory, mandatory classes. And I said, oh, negotiation well, I negotiated a political reform in Mexico. I don't need that. No. So leadership, come on, no? Uh Another that I really enjoyed that uh, uh, so much, like uh, macroeconomics and international finances. But let me say that I learned a lot in leadership with these famous guys. So, uh, I learned a lot in negotiation, and I learned a lot in public finances. Um, What I really appreciate is I learned from my own mistakes before being here. What's incredible, when I took my first lessons in negotiation, I understood my own mistakes in the past. So this dramatic issue in which uh, you say, well, if I learned this before, I could do better my public life, so. and the other leadership was very impressive for me uh, because maybe you know the class is very interactive, uh, it's like a therapy. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean about that, no? But uh, I learned a lot in the sense that uh, it is important to understand that leadership is not about I'm the good guy and follow us, follow me, everybody. No, that is not the way in which the world is working today. The world is more interactive, even more in this era of uh, social nets and Twitter and others. You need to be absolutely open about what is happening around you. Now, uh, I can answer your first questions. I tried to, at the beginning, I, I was really committed. All my life has been like uh, try to be very responsible and you know, very dedicated. But uh, at that time, I learned to be a little bit more relaxed sometimes. So actually, I saw a lot of fellows, the students, they were organizing in a very responsible way some caucus. There was the African-American caucus. There was the, the Asian caucus and the Jewish caucus and so on. So we organized our own caucus, caucus with my fellow classmates of Latin America. And the caucus was the, the Latin Rumba caucus. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very funny one. We didn't propose too much about these issues about market and <laughs> in regional integration. But we, we had a lot of fun. You know? So and my advice is uh, what was different after Kennedy School. Probably the most important asset of the Kennedy School is to teach you how to take decisions. And more important than that is the lesson that you need to take decisions. Despite the fact that you in government, you will never have comfortable decision. Not at all. It's absolutely false. Whenever we'll tell you that you need to decide between good or bad, he's a liar. That is not true. You almost always the most difficult decisions are between two evils. And you need to decide for the lesser one. That's the more difficult part of the government. You never will have clear and or easy decisions. Yes, I can I can tell here about how we close the public deficit. The public deficit in Mexico this year will be zero. That is great for the nation. However, Explain to the people that you raise taxes. So the political cost was enormous. So we lost the election. Yes. But was there another option for the country? No. There was not. So I needed to decide. It was a painful decision. I remember the people and my own fellows in my party claiming against me. But at that particular moment of the crisis, there was no option. Actually, you can see the consequences in all those countries that didn't close on time their deficit. And they are suffering a lot. The people are suffering even more with this terrible adjustment in Greece and Spain and everywhere. So Mexico did things on the right time in a very painful way. So but Kennedy School teach me, take decisions, take your own responsibility and how to take that decision. You never will have full information. What is the expression here in the United, the United States is the uh, Monday morning quarterback. It doesn't happen in politics. It doesn't happen in government. You need to decide with very few information. So you, you need to, to see all the options. You need to listen to all the experts. You need to try to have this, the, the spirit of the people and then call the facts. That's your duty. And finally, did you allow me, Dines? Government and public service is about principles. It's about beliefs. And if if there is any advice I could give you beyond these classes and take this or that, or whatever, no? is uh, it is important for anyone at any age, in college or high school or even in my own age, to find an honest motive for your life. So you need to explore what exactly are the reasons why you are here in this planet, in this moment, in your country. What are those reasons? You need to find the purpose of your own life. And it could come from your religion or beliefs. It could come from your uh, principles or from your, your, your love for the environment, whatever but you need to have a powerful reason to live. And once you find your own honest motive in life, embrace him and fight for it with all your heart. And that's the way in which life is really, really valuable. And public service has a lot of sense.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you